You are listening to the Journal of Rheumatology's Editor's Picks with Dr. Earl Silverman, Editor-in-Chief. Hello again, this is Earl Silverman, Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Rheumatology, welcoming you to the July 2023 edition of Editor's Picks. I want to thank you for having taken the time to listen to this podcast. This month, I will begin by speaking to Dr. Timothy Kwok on behalf of all the authors of a paper entitled Changes in Service Delivery and Access to Rheumatologists Before and During the COVID-19 Pandemic in a Canadian Universal Health Care Setting. Dr. Kwok will give a review of his findings. So at the time when, when, when we were conducting this study, a mm-hmm. um, couple have been published and most of the data was from um, the, the, the group in, in the United States. And obviously it's not a universal healthcare system, but they also saw similar trends in a decreased um, number of healthcare encounters in patients with rheumatic diseases, a drastic upshift in, in the proportion of telemedicine encounters and additionally, they also saw treatment and laboratory monitoring interruptions. Um, and, and findings were quite similar to studies that have been replicated in Latin America, as well as Italy. Um, in terms of a general Canadian context, uh, so Rick Glazier in, in the CMAJ also published on this and noticed similar trends in terms of when all medical specialties were analyzed, all surgical specialties were analyzed. And, and this begs the question, you know, in, in Canada, because we have a universal healthcare system and point of contact is with primary care, are these interruptions because patients were not able to access their primary care physician or nurse practitioner, which is the point of first referral, uh, after which subsequent rheumatology consideration can be considered. Um, although our aim was not specifically that question, nor do we have the um, clinical richness in our data sets. To, to look into that area is certainly is hypothesis generating. I hope you enjoyed listening to Dr. Kwok review the findings of his study, changes in service delivery and access to rheumatologists before and during the COVID-19 pandemic in a Canadian universal healthcare setting as he reviews the findings and compares these findings to the findings of other studies. I suggest that you listen to the full interview and read the full-length article, as well as an editorial about this article, which is titled COVID-19 Disrupts Rheumatology Care, an Opportunity for Innovation, by Drs. Rebecca Granger and Valerie Milne from the University of Otago, Wellington, New Zealand. Both the paper and editorial are currently available at our website at www.jroom.com. Now we'll move on to the other papers, and beginning with understanding differences in patient descriptions of rheumatoid arthritis flares using OMARAC core domains, and it's by Micah and colleagues. As the rheumatology community has come to a consensus on domains that 
constitute a flare. It has been observed that there are differences between physicians and patients' assessments of flares. The aim of this study was to evaluate how demographic and clinical characteristics of a patient may influence a patient's definition of a flare. This study examined 645 participants who had been enrolled in a prospective RA registry and who had completed a qualitative survey, which included the open-ended question, what does a flare mean to you? Responses were categorized into OMARAC core and research domains. Univariate analysis evaluated the demographic and clinical characteristics of the patients. And regression analysis determined individual variables that were associated with flare descriptions. Cohort consisted of the 645 participants with a mean age of 60 years, a mean disease duration of 14 years, of which 82% were female. They had a median DAS 28 CRP of 2.1, and 58% of the cohort reported at least one flare in the, the previous six months. Overall, participants reported a median of three OMARAC core domains when describing flares. Of the OMARAC domains, pain was the most common domain, which was reported in 72.9% of the flares, with its subcategory painful joints in 35.5%, and decrease in dysfunction in 41.2%. Fatigue was more commonly known among female than male patients, while older participants were less likely to report emotional distress, swollen joints, physical function decrease, and a general increase in RA symptoms during a flare than younger patients. In the discussion, the authors reviewed the significance of their findings. They expand on their conclusion that there is variation in patients with flare descriptions and that this variation can be driven by the patient's disease activity, the experience they had of a recent flare, and the patient's demographic characteristics. They review the importance of understanding the patient-to-patient variation of the effect of a flare on their health. This is important reading as we begin to more and more understand patient variations of flare in RA. Third paper to bring your attention to is entitled Cigarette Smoking Increases the Prevalence of Hip Joint Involvement and Ankylosing Spondylitis, a real-world case control study by Hugh and colleagues. In this case control study, 103 patients with AS, 120 were, and hip involvement, the cases were compared to 125 AS controls without hip involvement. In univariate analysis, it was found that patients with hip involvement were more likely to be male, have had a juvenile onset of their AS, were overall of a younger age of onset, 
had a history of peripheral arthritis and had more likely to have cigarette exposure than those without hip involvement. After adjusting for confounding factors, juvenile onset, male sex, and cigarette smoking were independently associated with hip involvement in this AS cohort. Details of the association with pack years is given in, the, in this paper. This paper is important to read so you can give your patients another good reason not to smoke. Fourth article is entitled The Phenome-Wide Association Study of Drugs and Comorbidities Associated with Gastrointestinal Dysfunction in Systemic Sclerosis, and it's by McLean and colleagues. In this study, the authors explored the links between GI dysfunction and drugs and comorbidity in patients with systemic sclerosis, and they used a phenome-wide association approach. In this approach, they used multiple logistic regression analyses of six GI outcome symptoms of constipation, diarrhea, dysmotility, incontinence, reflux, small intestinal bowel overgrowth, and use these in the analysis against diagnosis and drugs. Overall, they examined 1,546 patients, of which the majority had limited systemic sclerosis, and the mean, median follow-up to cohort was 16.5 years. In their initial analysis, they found 673 distinct diagnoses, 634 distinct drugs, and six autoantibodies or ANA patterns in this cohort. They found that the Drugs used for the management of systemic sclerosis were present, but also that the majority of medications prescribed in these patients was for a non-systemic sclerosis indication. They then run a secondary confirmative analysis to confirm the association with GI symptoms as described by the patient using the UCLA GIT 2.0 patient reported score. This analysis confirmed that there were links with GI symptoms in for 22 drugs, four diagnoses, and three different autoantibodies or ANA patterns. The details of the association of individual diagnoses, drugs, and ANAs or autoantibodies are elegantly shown in the figures and tables. This paper highlights the importance of new approaches for association in complex diseases and, and also the importance of multidisciplinary care and careful examination of polypharmacy as they may be the 
prescribed by multiple physicians from multiple disciplines, all involved in the care of patients with systemic sclerosis. It highlights the need of physicians to talk to each other. Pregnancy in patients with rheumatic diseases present a challenge and require the input of multiple physicians to optimize care. The aim of a paper entitled Patient Care Pathways for Pregnancy in Rare and Complex Rheumatic Diseases results from an international survey by Tani and colleagues was to look at the existing organizational care pathways and clinical service of physicians with expertise in the care of pregnant women with rheumatic diseases. The authors report on their survey of rheumatologists that focused on organizational aspects reported to patients' pathways before, during, and after pregnancy. The, the results are from 69 centers from 21 different countries, which included patient physicians from Europe, South America, North America, and Asia. The majority of centers had a multiple, multiple multidisciplinary clinic, which in addition to a rheumatologist included an obstetrician gynecologist in 91%, a nephrologist in 49%, while only minority of clinics, less than 20%, had either a midwife, psychologist, and or nutritionist. Patients with SLE and or antiphospholipid antibodies were the most commonly followed group of patients and were seen in more than 90% of the clinics. While such diseases in, in, as inflammatory myopathy and IgG4 disease were not frequently seen in these clinics. In the majority of centers, there was a multidisciplinary care team. As expected, almost all centers did provide routine prenatal care, although the number of visits during the pregnancy varied across centers. A formalized care pathway was only found in 49% of the centers with 20% of the centers having had a predefined protocol for monitoring a pregnant patients. Access to therapies during the pregnancies varied across the centers. Authors did not find significant discrepancies in responses to their questions between European and non-European centers. More details of the results and implications of their study are given in the results in the discussion section. In the accompanying editorial titled Optimizing Care for Pregnancy in Rheumatic Diseases, Barriers and Potential Solutions, Dr. Madhuri Rad Radkar Krishna, Sunitha Kaitiha, and Vinod Ravindra, fine from Hyderabad, and Manipal, India, give an overview of the 
paper and their interpretation of the paper by Tanny and colleagues, and they review the state of the art to optimize the care of pregnant patients with rheumatic diseases. Both of these articles are important reading to for all rheumatologists to better understand where the world stands in the complex care of patients with complex rheumatic diseases and how we can do better. The image in rheumatology I want to highlight this month describes a 59-year-old female with a history of anti-JO1 antibody positive anti-synthetase syndrome who presented for a second opinion of the disease with stiffness, swelling, and pain in the small joints of her hands. She was noted on examination of dactylitis and swelling of the distal digits bilaterally. The authors describe the distal phalanx as follows. Each distal phalanx was felt to float freely away from the joint, end of quote. It should be noted that these signs and symptoms developed on both prednisone and mycophenolate mofetil. Radiographs of the hand showed extensive osteolysis of the DIP joints of multiple digits with marginal erosions. In addition to anti-JO1 antibo- antibody, she had low titer anti-CCP antibody level and a positive rheumatoid factor. Based on the radiographs and physical examination, a diagnosis of arthritis mutilans was made. As her lung disease was active, in addition to her arthritis, she received pulse cyclophosphamide, which stopped progression of the lung and joint disease. Please view the radiographs and photos of her hands. The Panorama 360 Degrees of Rheumatology article this month is by Dr. Brian Robert Smith, as entitled Rheumatology's Animal Kingdom, a Digital Art Series. In this paper, the author uses digital art to illustrate his vision of a patient with a butterfly rash, a swan, illustrating a swan neck deformity, and a third digital art of the panda sign as seen in lung radiograph, which are characteristic of sarcoidosis. I am sure you enjoy seeing this artwork as much as I did. I want to thank you for listening to this podcast and encourage you to read not only my highlighted articles, but all the articles in the July 2023 edition of the Journal of Rheumatology, either in the print or online editions. The latter is available at www.jroom.org. Please watch the interview I had with the author of the highlighted paper this month, but also you're able to view the previous months if you have missed them. They are available for viewing at both our website and on YouTube.
If you have any comments or questions on these highlighted articles, or in fact any article in the Journal of Rheumatology, please send your comments to manuscripts at jroom.com. And please listen next month to the August 2023 edition of Editor's Highlights. Thank you. Thank you.